Hello and welcome to the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast with me, your host, A.M. Peacock. But for the purposes of this, you can just call me Adam. Judith O'Reilly is the co-host today on this instalment of the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast. Judith, the author of the Michael North series, the latest of which, Curse the Day, is available to buy now from stores such as Forum Books, who we do this podcast in conjunction with. We will put the website for Forum in the show notes, but please do use them. They are an independent bookshop and they need all of our help at this time. Uh, Today's guest, delighted to say, is Holly Watt. Holly started her career at the Sunday Times before moving to the Daily Telegraph. During six years at the Telegraph, she was the Whitehall editor and jointly ran the investigations team. She then moved to work on the Guardian's investigations team. Holly has been nominated for a wide range of journalism prizes, winning awards for her work on stories including MPs' expenses at the Telegraph and the Panama Papers at the Guardian. She has reported from a wide range of countries, including Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Libya, Jordan and Lebanon. As well as flying around the world on everything from Lynx helicopters to Air Force One, Holly has also worked as an undercover journalist. In 2008, she was the Lawrence Stern Fellow, spending several months working at the Washington Post. That's her kind of background as a journalist. Um, And her novel, To the Lions, was published by Bloomsbury Raven in February 2019 and by Dutton Penguin Random House in September 2019. Um, I want to obviously dig into the crime fiction stuff, Holly, but... You are a journalist and writer, so let's start with the journalism. Tell us about that, because that, that's like some kind of action man sort of CV there. So <laughs> tell us about the start of that and how you how you got into that and how you found it. Well, actually, I started at the same time, uh, well, I was at the Sunday Times at the same time that Judith was there, um, quite a long time ago now, but uh, no, it was brilliant. And basically, I just started at the Sunday Times in a sort of slightly undercover way essentially because a friend of mine was doing work experience on the style section and I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life at all and it was all a bit chaotic and she was like come and do work experience with me um they'll never notice they're all a bit disorganized um so basically we used to just sneak into the style section together I quite quickly realized that style wasn't the way forward for me and so I sort of migrated down to the news desk the newsroom and stayed there fantastic and so um See, this is this is because I have an interest in this because obviously newspapers have kind of different political persuasions and whatnot, and and the Guardian is perhaps quite different to some of the others there. So is it just do you just follow the work or do you kind of go? No, from my perspective, I have these beliefs, and so I will only work with certain newspapers. Or how does that work for a journalist? I I certainly when I moved from the Telegraph to the Guardian, there was. I distinctly met with a bit of suspicion from some of the Guardian journalists, but <laughs> I do think it's, you know, quite, I do think it was, I think it's really important to have a separation between the opinion pages and the news pages. And I do think as much as possible, and obviously it's not always possible because we're human beings, as much as possible, the news should be reported with as straight a bat as possible. I think it always gets quite complicated and quite difficult the moment you start bringing um, your political beliefs strongly into that. Mm. Um, of course, the opinion pages are very different. Um, but I, I genuinely felt it was okay to go and work for the Telegraph and the Guardian, and I found both organisations fascinating in their different ways. Um, yeah. Now yeah. I never had a problem with it, but I know that some people found it a bit suspicious. Yeah, the Guardian being suspicious of somebody or something—that's <laughs> surely not. <laughs> what about you, Judith? Because obviously, you know, knowing Holly from back in the day, is it the same for you in that regard? Uh, the Guardian was very anti the Sunday Times when I was there. You know, I, I think actually there'd have been more suspicion 
from the Guardian towards the Sunday Times than um, than vice versa, really. I mean, but you see, I think people are suspicious. You know, they're suspicious of the Murdoch press and they're um, suspicious of journalists, you know, coming in with some right-wing agenda, whereas, you know, grown-up journalists really come to it um, very, very straight. You know, they're after the story, they're after truth, you know, um, they're not going to let politics get in the way of it. I mean, you know, it, it's not something that interferes with a story when you're pursuing it. Um, wouldn't you say, Holly? No, absolutely. I think, you know, I can think of various stories I've worked on, but, you know, it's being aggressive journalist, you're going into work fairly kind of aggressively at time. And for me, it was absolutely vital that I was doing it without any particular political um, belief. I uh, certainly kind of... <laughs> I always feel like everybody believes that they're sent middle of the road politically, even if you kind of know objectively you're far right or far left or somewhere, you know. I always felt like I went around the Guardian being like, you know, capitalism really can be helpful at times. And at the Telegraph, I used to wander around being like, wouldn't it be nice if people paid tax a bit more? You know, so I actually think <laughs> I genuinely am quite politically in the middle. Um, but, you know, I think for me, one of the key stories actually that that we only could really do by being politically very sort of straight down the middle was actually MPs expenses because part of the reason Telegraph got that disc was because we promised source categorically that we'd sort of basically go for absolutely everyone that you know obviously the, the Telegraph is very much a sort of seen as Tory bastion but for that story um you know we went off the cabinet ministers at the time no sorry shadow cabinet ministers at the time just as strongly as we went after the government um you know at, it wouldn't have worked as a story if we hadn't done that. Yeah, and so for you, because obviously you, you're well travelled with that with the journalism as well. What was the, what's the the lure for you into that kind of world? Because it, it can't be without danger. I mean, I'm saying that as a total outsider who goes to like Cumbria on holiday, um, and finds <laughs> flies and spiders rather frightening. But like that just seems like otherworldly to me, you know. I think I just found it completely fascinating. You know, I I, I was incredibly lucky to do that job, and it really. Uh, it's just felt like the most extraordinary privilege to be sort of landed in a fascinating part of the world at the most interesting times of its history. I remember being out in Libya during, well, just in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, actually, and just watching these big protests going on, and especially in hindsight, given what's happened in Libya since, it's particularly kind of tragic. Mm -hmm. But just watching these people who hadn't hadn't had the capacity to protest for the whole of Gaddafi's regime suddenly being out there and having just having their banners, you know, I they'd literally ask like are we doing this right you know we haven't really done protests before you know how do you do it and it's just you know it's the most incredible sort of thing to see people going through these moments whether it's like you know it's outside the white house the night that um obama won that election again <laughs> sorry both these stories are things that you know history has certainly gone in directions that we wouldn't necessarily anticipate at the time but yeah it's just extraordinary being in these places when something's happening that you do feel history shift a bit Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, when you, when you mentioned about the, the Conservatives as shadow ministers, I mean, I, I had to stop there and think, God, how long ago was that now? I mean, it is a decade, it is a decade which has flown yeah. and it's been, I mean, there's been a lot going on, put it that way. But sorry, Judith, come in there, yeah. I, mean, I was just going to say, were you, um, were you a foreign reporter or were you in these kind of places when you were doing the investigations then, Holly? No, so basically, the Telegraph was going through a period of some upheaval at the time. So um, they'd actually, they didn't have like foreign correspondents in lots of different places. So basically, you know, sometimes they'd just be a bit like, oh, could you just go here or could you go there? It was, it was quite, it was a little bit chaotic. Um, but also sometimes I'd just be like, I, you know, I was working the investigation team and somebody from the investigation had to go to South Korea or wherever it was. And I loved doing that. And um, also at the same time, 
can't quite remember the circumstances, but I was doing quite a lot of the um, the trips, you know, to Afghanistan with like I think you know with David Cameron or just something would happen in Afghanistan, and I, because I was um, kind of up for it basically, <laughs> or I'd be sent off. <laughs> so, what was David Cameron like as a travel buddy? Um, well, I don't think quite the view of him that Sasha Swire did. My God, have you read these diaries? Oh, he's got goodness <laughs> me! Do you think Sarah Vine is hacked off? That, um, <laughs> that she's been beaten to the punch with these diaries. I mean, a bit. <laughs> she's like, yeah, yeah, seeing with Sarah Vine and Michael Gove, surely they are keeping diaries. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It must be. Yeah. But also, like, the sheer, I think it was the sheer sort of horror of all these people of realizing it's only right in the middle if you've suddenly gone completely rogue. It's just hilarious. <laughs> So, so as as long as you weren't left anywhere unattended, was that you were okay in that regard? Yeah. No, I was definitely, I, I definitely was not pushed into the bushes by David Cameron. Or, <laughs> by his, my perfume did not have that effect on him, for whatever it was. <laughs> so, so Holly, I, I want to get into your kind of the books now because I could talk about this all day. But obviously, you're a crime writer, and this is a crime fiction podcast. So, your first novel, <laughs> which I, I probably did a disservice in a way, and we'll get on to your second book in a bit, which is called The Deadline. For anybody um, listening, buy it now. Um, your first novel, To the Lines, which won the 2019 CWA Ian Fleming Steel Dagger Award. Um, you must be you must have a, a room filled with certificates and medals and, and whatever else from all these achievements. Um, tell us about that book and how that came about for you at the time. Um, I think I'd always wanted to be a writer. I mean, you know, you go into journalism, and of course, there's lots of writing a day-to-day thing. And actually, that kind of absorbed most of my I want to be a writer thing for quite a long time. But then I think it was basically, I was working with Panama Papers at The Guardian, and it was a great story, but it was eight months sitting in a room, sort of tapping through documents, and there were millions and millions of documents. And it was fascinating, but it was also essentially quite repetitive. And I think during that time, I started thinking a bit about my former career, particularly The Telegraph and The uh, Sunday Times, just sort of what we got up to or what I got up to over the time. And by the time the Panama Papers were finished, I was just a bit kind of like, hmm, I think I might, you know, start writing a bit. And I'd also, the kind of underlying, the, the storyline of um, To the Lions, which is quite, well, very grim and dark, that was based originally on, um, well, partly on a article I read a long time ago in, I can't remember what I was doing research-wise to come across it, but basically um, in a Hungarian newspaper about people um, in Sarajevo during the war in Bosnia. So it was really a long time ago um and and yeah so those two things basically merged into one and i just started writing about this journalist um investigative journalist called casey benedict so uh obvious question i'm sure everyone asks you it but how much of you is casey and how much of casey is you then because for people who haven't read it i mean she's an investigative journalist and you know she's at the cutting edge and you know she's in the twenties and she's like full on and a brilliant reporter so um that's wishful thoughts <laughs> <laughs> no i mean i think basically there's definitely sort of autobiographical elements in there and there's definitely a lot of what the undercover work i used to do um that's sort of that the knowledge of that and what it actually feels like to, to, to go into those situations that's certainly in there i mean casey herself is a bit of a loose cannon shall we say and doesn't always respect the editor's code in quite the way one would hope um so in that way she's nothing like me um and you know she's 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 kind of, she's very much a workaholic, obsessive, driven. I, I think definitely I was a bit more like that in my 20s. Uh, I think now I'm in the sensible 30s. 
not quite as bad. <laughs> so how do you form that character then? How does that work for you? Do, do you consciously, do you do a character profile at the start? Do you create somebody who's like different from you because you're worried about that? Or like, how does it come about? Well, actually, um, so while I was, I was working at The Guardian when I wrote it, and there's a brilliant journalist there called Jonathan Friedland who writes uh, books on the name Sam Bourne. Um, and when I'd actually written to the Lions, I went to him and, and we started talking, he was really helpful and kind. And he was like, one thing I find really useful is to like really make the character different from yourself. Because <laughs> like, for example, my most recent one, the main character is a woman. And I was like, hmm. Yeah, I probably left it a bit late for doing that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but having <laughs> having said that, I think, you know, she is very different from me. Um, I think it's she's also a bit of an amalgam of a whole range of journalists I've worked with. I think all the different characters are. They're all kind of, you know, all newsletters I've ever worked with mashed into one ghastly character. And, you know, I don't, I mean, I'm not particularly worried Particularly, I think, because I've got a bit of distance. You know, Casey's in her late 20s. I'm, let's say, a good solid decade older than that. Um, you know, she's she's quite different from me um and sometimes she does things which i'm like oh my goodness you need to grow out of this young lady but not yet <laughs> the thing is you know, like having worked for the sunday time for myself i'm reading Hollywood books and i'm going well that's definitely i'm not going to eat definitely him and that's definitely him and that's definitely her and i've seen that happen <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a certain degree of um, <laughs> spotting going on in Fleet Street over different characters. But I do also, I mean, they aren't total this. I mean, there's certainly, you know, somebody's like, that's how that person takes their coffee, for example. And I'm like, yes. Oh, yes. Every absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had a news editor who basically took, you know, half a cup of instant coffee and the rest of it topped up with boiling water. Mm. And I used to have to make these because I was the most junior person on the news desk and like I was the most junior person in the newsroom so I used to, have to make these coffees again and again at like four o'clock in the morning which oh. is all quite depressing but yeah see like 15 years later my subconscious has got its revenge mm. he was a very nice man in other ways <laughs> well, we've, had a, we've had a bit of a theme recently with people on the show who have had backgrounds in journalism and I remember when I started writing and I, I it was almost like the people I seemed to read and, and met at these festivals when I was a punter um, they all had this journalism background. And for a, a little while, it put me off writing until I, I think it was Tess Gerritsen I went to see. And she was very sort of, oh, no, do whatever. You can do, come from me from whatever angle. You don't eat it. Because I was thinking maybe I should be a journalist for 10 years and then try it. <laughs> but for, for you, did, did you, was it seamless, that transition into fiction writing? Or did you find it a struggle? Did the journalism really help? I think the journalism helped only in the way that I think as a journalist, you're just, you're used to facing down a blank screen and just getting on with it. You know, that you'd be expected to write a thousand words by four o'clock, come hell or high water, and you just did. So I think on that front, you know, you don't have a kind of sitting around waiting for the news to turn up. You just get it done. So I think journalists have got the advantage in that, but equally anyone can do that if they just sort of scare themselves a bit. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, my news writing, as it were, was so formulaic and so kind of standardised that, you know, I didn't, take much not particularly pride is the wrong word but you know like when I was writing a news copy it never kind of it wasn't sort of thinking oh this is precisely word you know it got sliced a bit by the subs anyway um 
So no, I mean it was it, they, they are two very different skill sets. I don't certainly I think journalism helps in some ways, but not in others. I do think where it can be helpful is just on the sheer thing of making every word count. That you're yes. just kind of very used to kind of having to get a lot of information quite quickly and get on with it, which I suppose does make for quite sort of tight packed books. Yeah, I have um, heard. Plus, um, you know, ju- sorry, I, I have heard numerous writers say it's in the editing that it really helps because it's like you have such a strict word count and whatnot. That you, that mm. quite rightly, it's like the every word counts sort of thing, and that's where it really comes to the fore. Yeah, no, exactly. I think you know it is helpful in certain ways, but in other ways, you know, it's not. And also, because journalists are quite often being put into interesting situations mm. or met a whole, you know, but everybody can meet a whole range of people. Um, you know, uh, but, but I found it useful, but it wasn't the be all and end all. Yeah, I like this idea of being like writing what you know, and obviously this book's you know. Um, culminate <laughs> yes. life or life death chase through the desert to Libya and the thing is you kind of know that and I'm, I'd kind of be I'm going to admit this but I, what, the first book I ever wrote which is probably deleted now quite rightly um, <laughs> what I knew was I was a teacher at the time so I wrote a story about a guy who was a teacher who moved to an abandoned sort of village type place and the locals didn't take well to him and I think I was reading a lot of Stephen King at the time and it was just you know that outsider treated badly um, and he was very when I read it back I thought it's very much me but not in a good way and so uh, that is definitely gone but but yeah chases through the, the deserts of Libya that, that's uh, something a bit different isn't it <laughs> well I think yeah exactly you do I definitely found out a sort of god that sounds really introspective and a bit tedious but certainly when I because I read I wrote to the lines very very fast when I finally got started writing it and when I read it back through I was like oh I'm not sure if I really enjoyed my job after all that you know like when I read it I was like well hang on this is a bit more fraught than I'd necessarily taken on board when I'm actually living it so you know in that way it was quite interesting yeah I'm intrigued that you um actually have a heroine who's a journalist uh, a mate of mine who's also a journalist wanted a uh, central you know protagonist who was a journalist and she was advised against that she was uh, told that it put people off yeah i think it's kind of a weird one because i don't quite you know when you think about it you know you've got police procedurals you've got literally a million police procedurals and like Police officers aren't necessarily people that you'd associate with writing in particular. Whereas journalists, an industry which you clearly would associate with writing, not that many books about, you know. So I don't quite know. I think people are at the moment certainly quite used to treating journalists as a sort of punch bag for the nation's sins, which, you know, there's an argument for that. Um, but I, for me, it was quite obvious when I started writing. And actually, my first ever meeting with my agent before he was even my agent, he was like, Do you think this could be a series? Because, you know, you, you've got a situation where people will face an endless series of stories or investigations in a way that you know your midsummer murders thing there is a kind of question mark there but really would the same disaster strike in the small village again and again mm-hmm. so it's you know it's a format that does lend itself to series and publishing like series and you know it's an odd one i don't quite know why people don't like it i wonder if it's partly to do with um you know police officer or detective they are attempting to get to the bottom of a mystery, you know, because of justice and law, whereas there is self-interest in any journalistic investigation because, you know, uh, you want that story. Absolutely. You're driven very much by the fact you want that splash. Yeah, and you want it first, and, you know, and quite often, you know, who's it benefiting in particular? It's not necessarily benefiting the subjects of the story. Um, You know, and if it is, for justice, as it were, in heavy quotes, um, you know, who exactly puts a bunch of journalists and gives them that power to do it? It's a weird, weird concept. But in this country, you do have a, you know, a long history of journalism holding 
politicians, whoever else, to account at times when other people didn't. So it is part of the British tradition, I would say, but it is a very, very odd one. And I think, and I'm very aware, and I think all the way through the books, it's quite clear that there is an awareness that these people are doing it for reasons they don't absolutely even fully understand or bother to question, um, but it's not necessarily all altruism and charming, you know. It, it does allow when you have a journalist like like any or any kind of rogue protagonist like likes of Judith so you don't have to follow the rules as such you know there are things you can do undercover and I soon found that with me on police procedurals you, you think oh I can't really do that how can I engineer somebody or a scenario where he doesn't have to kind of think do I have the right to arrest this person or say or do whatever so there's a freedom with that which is interesting to me you know but you mentioned your, your agent before so what was the route to getting an agent then published like for you how did that come about so like you I think like almost every writer ever um there is a deleted thank god first effort which you know <laughs> which I'll never see the light of day um but then I also had spoken to um my agent Andrew Gordon at David Hunt who's great um and he years before because I was thinking about doing a book about political party funding which would not have been very interesting uh, he mainly does non-fiction um and that one sort of got killed off because libel laws in this country do not um help writers um and so a few years later I went back to the same agent uh, and said well I've written this book um this novel this time so would you mind having a look at it and he did and that's went. Although it wasn't straight away from that, even after he'd sort of gone, oh, this is a good first draft, whereas I thought it was a finely polished novel, um, it was at least two or three drafts after that before it went anywhere near a publisher. Okay. And so book two then, uh, The Deadline, which is out now, uh, for people who are listening who maybe don't know about that at all, what, what's that book about? So that book's about an illegal surrogacy ring operating uh, partly in Bangladesh um, with clients in London in particular who, and so case then it goes undercover to, to Bangladesh to find out what's going on. Okay, okay. And what was that like in comparison to book one as a, as a process for you? Um, so that was quite, you know, I was very lucky to be offered a two-book deal by Bloomsbury. Um, and, it's quite, you know, everybody says, you know, your first book is basically you spend your entire life writing it, and your second book, you're suddenly told, like, right, we need to be back in 15 months, or whatever it was. Um, on top of that, I managed to get pregnant and felt absolutely terrible for at least three or four or five of those months. So it was all quite a bit of a rush getting book two out, um, to the point that certainly when my publishers first saw it, they're like, oh, this needs a bit of work, um, which was not exactly what you want to be hearing. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it. It was definitely another learning curve. Um, and we got there in the end after polite repurposing from my lovely editor at Bloomsbury. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I did, I did um, undercover work in abortion clinics and fertility clinics at, at one point, which uh, kind of, your book kind of brought it back to me. I, I kind of sort of shifted it to uh, one side of my subconscious. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think. Go on. I just, you know, I'm 38, so various of my friends have been through uh, IVF and, and different forms of it, and it is, you know, it's a really complicated industry uh, on many different levels, and it sort of promises um, a lot. Sometimes often delivers a lot, but it's, you know, it's brutal, and it is, it's, it's very commercialised. Um, and, you know, there are moral ambiguities in there. And that's not we can get started in the surrogacy industry, which is quite extraordinary. And also always heightened emotions. And also, you know, the jeopardy in terms of what's at stake. No, exactly. That, you know, you're trying, you know, people will do absolutely anything to get a baby. And that is, 
I thought it's an extraordinary emotion that people still don't really understand. I mean, I know when I wanted a baby, it was this genuinely kind of like, no, I want a baby thing. Rather, and people would be like, why? And I couldn't even explain it myself. It's just, and when an emotion is that sort of primitive, that you can't even really verbalize it. Um, I just thought it was interesting, particularly when you sort of meld it in with this quite sophisticated group operating partly in uh, refugee camps in southern Bangladesh, where I've travelled to, again, uh, during my time at The Guardian. Um, you know, it was, it was complicated, basically. Are, are you still sort of trying to change the world for the better, as it were, with, with what you write? I don't think I don't think of myself as somebody who's writing kind of like, this is what you should think, but I certainly like the idea of being like, have you thought about this? Or have you ever considered this? And my third book's uh, partly about antibiotic resistance. Um, and that's basically because my best friend is um, a specialist in infectious diseases. And she, you know, I mean, obviously coronavirus is nobody's idea of a good time, but she's like, nobody understands how bad antibiotic resistance is going to get. Um, so yeah, so it looks at that partly. And, you know, again, it's just one of those things that like, I've had hours of talking to my friends about how my friend about how bad antibiotic resistance can get. Um, but I just, you know, I think it's quite interesting putting it into a book while at the same time, you know, wrapping in a story that hopefully keeps the pages turning. <laughs> well, I, I want to commend you on your elevator pitch because when I asked you what the book was about, it was like a 10 second boom, there you go. And when people ask me about my own books, I, I have to sit there for 10 minutes just to think about it and go, well, what? How should I pitch this and what should I tell them? So that's actually amazing, Holly, uh, and, and well-practiced, one, one would assume there on that. So what's your writing process like then? Are you a planner? Plotter? Do you just come up with the initial idea and run with it? Do you get bogged down in research? What's what's the, the process for you? Um, so my research has, up until now, very much been almost as a byproduct of my journalism. So in some ways, I've dodged lots of heavy lifting there. Um, I'm very much a kind of seated pants person with a general kind of like idea of where the storyline's going but also quite often like absolutely no idea how it's going to get there and certainly in like into the lions there's a point when she's trying to get undercover in uh, Libya and I was just like I've got no idea how you'd actually go undercover <laughs> yeah because you needed you needed people to trust you very very fast in a very kind of high risk um situation where people would not naturally you know trust you and actually ended up going out for lunch with a really good friend of mine who used to work at the Sunday Times um and is a dear friend of mine be like how would we have done this what would we have actually done to get undercover in this situation um so you know I basically write and hope for the best a lot of people I think are much more organized than that I hope to not come across too much but I, I think I, that works for me the kind of having to sort of use your imagination as you go along and sort of having you know entirely characters suddenly emerge from nowhere that just want to get stuck in and you're like well we can't fight that yeah. <laughs> how does that sound to you Judith as a way of writing <laughs> um well I'm envying what you're doing because I I find I'm writing about things that I know nothing about at all um on the tech side of things like you know AI or radio astronomy yeah. or that well, kind of thing yeah I mean there's like autonomous weapons and say so that it's not something I can actually draw on my um journalistic experience um so that's taking me a long long time you know um you mean to say you've not you've not uh, built a work You've not built a sentient being to hang around with, have you not, Judith? What's that all about? <laughs> <laughs> well, in my downtime, Sunday, yes. I keep that for Sundays. I tell you one thing I've noticed about your uh, excellent books, Holly, which um, <laughs> I I really really enjoy, is um, how often you um, make a character who you kind of expect to be a bloke, a woman. So so many of Holly's characters are are women across the board. 
And I'm just like there sort of cheering you on on that one. It's great. Are you doing that consciously or or not? I think what really pleases me is that I'm not particularly doing it consciously. I think I was lucky and I I mean, I'm sure you had the same at Sunday Times. I, yeah, I worked with some really extraordinary women writers. Um, I mean, obviously, the Sunday Times had some really incredible uh, foreign correspondents, still does have some really incredible female correspondents. Um, you know, so I was just, it, it sort of that took it for granted, really. I mean, they were just, they were there. They were great role, role models. They did fantastic journalism. So, you know, and actually, they were quite, quite often, they were quite sort of aware and sort of fairly relaxed about the fact that they were better at their jobs because they were women. Um, and I kind of, that just, I'm not doing it particularly consciously. I do sometimes, so what's it called? The Bechdel test, the Bechdel test. Yeah. You know, I'm, it does sort of make me happy that my characters, like, simply, it doesn't even, you know, they smash it so comprehensively within the first three chapters of any book. You know, they don't sit around talking about men. Occasionally, a man appears over the horizon to them. <laughs> But it's not, you know, it, they're not that. They're, they are they're their own lives. They're also very relaxed about being successful and, you know, and, and professionally highly, highly valued as well, which I think, you know, it's important. But I just, it wasn't a conscious thing. It was just kind of, you know, I was lucky professionally that that was something I took for granted. I know it's, um, it's difficult to kind of, this seems an odd question in some ways, but what's the plan for you in terms of career and where you want to go with the books? Do you have a kind of long-term vision of what that looks like and where you're going next? Yeah, you know, again, in the same way that I don't seem to plan books particularly, I don't seem to have a, like a riding plan for the series. I mean, the Belize have now commissioned another two, so it'll be four in total um, for sure. As long as I, so I've literally just finished book three, um, but that's you know going to copy instance. Um, and I want to write book four, and then I, I'm not really sure. I mean, I think with books, it's such a kind of long-term horizon, isn't it? That you know, I deliver the next one in about a year's time. Um, you know, so I don't, I don't particularly know. I like them to keep going. I think they, I think they're kind of. I have been thinking about it. I think the characters are very kind of. You still don't know very much about them actually. This is, they're quite story-driven books, so there's still quite a lot to fill in about who these people actually are. Yeah, yeah. And part of the thing about being in a newsroom uh, is that you have this kind of cast of other characters you know everything from like the crossword guy to whatever and I think you could potentially have different people coming forward at different times and, and so on so cool so we shall see <laughs> yeah so um where can people find out more about you online Holly oh I've got a website uh, which I think is hollywatt.co.uk um yeah I'm on Twitter more than I appear because I'm not very good at actually Twittering, but I do like it when people contact me on Twitter. Okay. So and what's your Twitter handle there? Do you, know, do you know what your Twitter handle is? Uh, Holly underscore what, W-A-T-T. Okay, brilliant. Now, we ask three questions of every guest that we bring on the show at the end, um, well, at least when I remember to. Um, and the first question is, other than your own book or books, which book would you save from your house if it was burning down? Oh, crikey. Um, well, I'm just going to do this. Um, but leaving aside that, um, I don't know, it'd probably be something like relatively embarrassing, like Jilly Cooper or something, just because you could read that forever, very happily. I'd go with Riders from Jilly Cooper. That would keep me going pretty much eternally. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, if you were on death row, what would your last meal request be? Oh, crikey. Um, I really like pancakes. Maybe pancakes. <laughs> What would you put on those pancakes? Um, oh, I think I'd have a lot of different pancakes, but probably golden syrup. I really like yeah, that. Yeah, standard is great, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> this is very revealing, I think, yeah. these questions. <laughs> and perhaps the most important of all questions that anyone can ask in a serious setting such as this, uh, peanut butter, smooth or crunchy? I don't like peanut butter at all. 
You're the second no, guest to have said that. That's fine. Yeah. But if I was like, you got to have one right now, and they're in front of you, which would you choose? I think probably crunchy, just because I like peanuts, counterintuitively, but I don't like peanut butter. But crunchy's probably more like peanuts. So. <laughs> Holly Watt, thank you very much for being on the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast today. Oh, thanks so much for having a sort of dubious southerner on. Thanks very much. <laughs> Here we are in the after show segment of the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast with me, your host, Ian Peacock and Judith O'Reilly. So Judith, initial thoughts on that. And it must be interesting for you as a fellow journal and kind of knowing Holly as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I uh, really like um, Holly's books. I think they're great. They're a really good read. Um, she's an excellent writer. Uh, and I think her stories are really interesting. You know, sometimes you read a book and you're a bit like, yeah, I can see it's clever enough, but it's really not sort of, you know, gripped me. I think the actual nature of her stories... Um, are just really original you know uh and yeah my only caveat is uh it makes me feel like i'm back at work a little bit sometimes because you know she's in the newsroom or in the sort of you know um investigations office in in her case and do you miss it do you miss it do you miss that uh do you miss it uh yeah you tend to miss journalism when there's a really big cracking story then uh you get sort of itchy really something in your blood gets really itchy to be involved and then sometimes there's a story and you just think thank god i'm nowhere near it you know mm. and so do you do you not in like a um editing red pencil sense but do you read you know articles and look at journalism maybe even with the papers that you've you've worked with and think Oh, that's that's not very good, or that is good because I don't have a, a I'm not able to critique in that way. But I don't know whether for you you kind of well, can as a analyze. Journalist, it journalist, you um you follow news. I don't know any journalist or former journalist who doesn't follow news quite. You know, on the Today program and papers mm. and TV news, you name it. You know, you're you're sort of following it. Um, sometimes all at once. And when there's a big story. Uh, that people can find a bit of a turn off when it's a story that keeps going and going and going. Mm. Actually, if you follow it, then if you follow it properly, it's a bit like a soap opera. So the more you follow it, the more gripped you are. Whereas if you Mm. switch off, I get quite um, irritated really when people say, oh, you know, we've got enough bad news. You know, I'm not going to follow Brexit anymore. I can't bear to... Um, you know, keep across, you know, the pandemic. Because I think you should. <laughs> I'm really quite judgmental. You well, know, that was actually going to be my next question on that, because do you not find it a bit sort of mentally fatiguing to be immersed in that all the time? It is mentally fatiguing, yeah. But I think, you know, you have a responsibility to keep across what's happening in the world. Mm. What if you've taken the decision that you don't trust that news source, rightly or wrongly, I suppose? Well, listen, you know, uh, our news sources are all we've got. So by all means, read how many news sources or listen to how many news sources you want. But if you think a world without Mm. news sources is a better one, then, you know, I'm sorry, that way lies sort of, you know, fascism and dictatorship. And I mean, Trump would love there to be no news sources other Mm. than, you know, his Twitter stream. Yeah, yeah. I'd be interested to hear some uh, feedback about what, what people feel in America, because we do have uh, US listeners, just to see kind of what they, they think about right. the current landscape. Yeah, well, you know, tweeters. Yeah, absolutely. At Northern underscore crime, give us a tweet. Um, yeah. So what's happening with you then, Judith, writing-wise? Are you up to anything? 
Uh, well, I've had a bit of a nightmare month because uh, my son has been really ill. I mean, sort of, you know, had a potentially life-threatening complication after an operation, which has kind of wiped me this month. But um, I've been doing some reading and I've been doing a tiny bit of polishing in sort of um, hospital wards uh, of the start I made to my book three. Um, so in terms of the reading I've been doing, I've uh, caught up with Brothers in Blood by Anna Anwar, and oh my god, love it, love it, love it. Yeah, yeah, I've seen love that his, um, uh, couple of central characters. Um, caught up with Fifty Fifty, Steve Cavanagh's latest. Okay. Um, yeah. Eddie Flynn, his central character, is one of my favourite characters of the moment. So, I've been um, hearing excellent things from a number of people about that book. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're, they're great. I mean, Eddie Flynn is a great invention. Um, and I, I, I don't actually, um, I don't go much really for uh, courtroom dramas, you know, mm. dare I say it. I think John Grisham is sometimes like, oh, you know, following every twist and turn in the same way as I'm just describing about uh, following every twist and turn. of. Just to point out, um, by the way, if John Grisham wishes to come on the show, we absolutely <laughs> won't um, discriminate against him. Yeah. Although there are some interesting talking points around John, John Grisham and the things that he's kind of, you know, he was in the news. I can't remember what it was now. It was something controversial, but we'll not get into it for now, just in case. <laughs> he is a lawyer after all. But anyway, Steve Cavanagh's courtroom dramas, I just think, are really, really gripping. Um, and we begin at the end, Chris Whitaker. And I, I, our colleague um, Rob Parker recommended that um, mm. a while ago. So that's great. And on TV, well, yeah, I've uh, been watching The Boys. Um, I have, yeah, love it. With Absolutely my uh, it. with my son uh, when when he's sort of been recuperating, and yeah, see, you're writing action thrillers. You know, I mean, superheroes and that world is right up my street. Absolutely, yeah. And I like I like sort of um, the fact you think you're going in one direction and then mm. it, you're actually somewhere else completely. I have um. I'll recommend it. I'm not sure how I feel about the ending of it yet, but it's clearly like the first series of something longer. But Young Valanda, um, that's on Netflix now, obviously based on the Henning Mankell books. So this is like a prequel, but also not because it's like he's young, but it's modern day Sweden. And I don't know if he ever wrote a book, you know, where Valanda was younger. Uh, the series I'd certainly read, there was nothing like that. So I think it's kind of been made up. But I really enjoyed the story to it, and and I, I was quite gripped by the series. So I, I'll put that out as a recommendation for people. It's worth it's worth checking out. So uh, that's been keeping me busy. And I'm reading some William Shaw at the minute, and uh, I've got the obviously the new Joe Nesbo book is imminently due out. By the time this podcast goes out, it I will own it and I will be reading it because I am a huge fan. And again, if Joe Nesbo wants to come on this show, please do. <laughs> Absolutely, I promise to be as professional as possible in your presence. Um, yeah, so that's keeping me busy. So, but uh, sorry to hear that about your son, Judith. But we wish him all the best. Um, yeah, God bless the NHS. I tell you. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Judith, for co-hosting today on the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast. It's always a pleasure to see you. Thanks for everything.